Future Sense is a podcast edited from the radio show of the same name, broadcast on Bay FM in Byron Bay, Australia at bayfm.org. Hosted by Nick Jeans and well-known international futurist Steve McDonald, Future Sense provides a fresh, deep analysis of global trends and emergent technologies. How can we identify the layers of growth, personally, socially, and globally? What are the signs missed, the truths being denied? Science, history, politics, psychology, ancient civilizations, alien contact, the new psychedelic revolution, cryptocurrency, and other disruptive and distributed technologies, and much more. This is Future Sense. And good morning to my co-host, Steve McDonald. Good, good morning. morning to you, Nick. How you doing? I'm good, thanks, mate. That's good. good. I'm not, as you know. I'm a bit ill I know, today. You're a bit under the weather this a morning. A bit under the weather, yeah. Feverish. Feverish and um, but, yeah, uh, something going on. But uh, getting on with things anyway, so well done to you. <laughs> got to get on with things, absolutely. Um, now, what are we talking about today? Because we've got some pretty intense things that have happened in the world. Yes, in lots the last of intense week or so. news. Um, yeah. And I think uh, appropriately, our theme today is about emotional responses to change. Mm. And we'll talk about the the trajectory of change, where it takes us, and how we we usually respond to those changes in our life yeah. in an emotional sense, and also I think generally about the uh, information overload that is mm. growing rapidly with the current paradigm shift mm. that's underway. Yeah, and as we've talked about before too, this uh, this feeling that a lot of people have, they simply don't know what the truth is simply don't know what to trust or who to trust. And, of course, that just yeah. creates even more fear. That's and right. Yeah. And, and, of course, tied to the information overload because there's so much information and uh, it, it's uh, varying because everybody has the opportunity to publish now on the internet and so it's hard to figure out what's real, what's not, yeah. what's true, what's not. Absolutely. You're resonating right now on Future Sense with Steve McDonald and Nick Jeans. Ah, yes, you're tuned to Future Sense here with uh, Steve and Nick. And uh, today we're talking a little bit about uh, the change process again, particularly with relevance to some of the uh, the big events that have occurred in the last week or so here, and that of course includes, in, in particular, the uh, the New Zealand mosque shootings. Terribly sad, terribly um, divisive, arguably, and perhaps part of the way that uh, things are being expressed as people become less and less certain, more and more afraid and uh, taking it out on other people. And one might always say that it's always been that way with human beings, but perhaps not. Perhaps we're in a particular frame, a particular phase of our evolution right now. So, Steve, let's flesh out some of the the process, the change process itself, how it manifests itself. Sure. So uh, let's just uh, summarise the trajectory of change very quickly Mm. so we can put this in context. And uh, this brief summary is from the work of Claire W. Graves, who uh, found this dynamic in his research into developmental psychology, and particularly he noted that when people went through major change, that was particularly taking them from one worldview to another worldview and a completely different set of values, there was this uh, trajectory profile of change that rolled out, and uh, this uh, is a, a ubiquitous pattern that you'll find pretty much anywhere you care to look because it's the change process doesn't just apply to human psychology and our experience it applies to everything and and i guess one of the more simple examples uh, is the four seasons of the year where we go from summer through autumn and winter and spring and then back to summer again and in the process there's a a kind of relative dying off Mm. that you know we we don't see Mm. it so much in in uh, green places like 
uh, here like Byron in Shire, Byron yeah. Shire, but uh, certainly in Europe and other countries, uh, you get that real extreme, you know, feeling of everything kind of freezing and dying, mm. and the leaves falling off the trees, and everything sort of goes. Uh, into static mode and then mm. uh, with the changing of the seasons everything blossoms again and returns mm. uh, anew and uh, we go through this cha- same process when we um, encounter major change because we as a general rule humans like stability and one of the key reasons for that is because our capacity to cope with life uh, comes as a result of change and when we find stability in other words when our coping capacity matches the challenges that life is throwing at us we feel comfortable and we can relax uh, it's kind of like summertime where you can kind of set up a hammock under a tree and chill out um, yes please and uh, and of course once <laughs> usually when we're in that state we don't want to be challenged we don't want to have to change because change involves mm. inevitably uh, feelings of being uncomfortable and uh, you know a basically a search for solutions which mm. can be sometimes quite difficult so um, the the steps that Graves uh, summarized in his simple version of change were from stability into a feeling of stress or turbulence where suddenly we wake up one morning and things just don't feel right and usually at that particular stage of the change process we don't know what the actual issue is we don't Mm. necessarily know what the cause of the change is we just know that our things aren't quite working as well as they used to Uh, and the initial human response to that is usually to think back to a time when things did work and so we go on this regressive search into the past looking for uh, some set of values or some way of living that we can switch to that will immediately fix what's wrong and that's an interesting evolutionary dynamic because by making this regressive search and going back to old ways we actually put a greater distance between ourselves and where we need to be in order to cope with greater complexity which is usually what's um, causing the the change in the first place is life's become more complex and our old ways of problem solving are too simple they don't uh, don't cut it and so by going backwards we we kind of create an evolutionary tension which is a bit like pulling back an elastic band on a slingshot and it's that tension in the elastic band that eventually reaches the point where it gives us enough momentum to move momentum to move forward and make the changes that we need to make mm-hmm. and in the process of, uh, of that tension building we descend into a place of chaos or crisis usually this is the usual trajectory mm-hmm. where things fall apart so in, in the turbulence phase you know things were obviously not working so well and then as that ramps up we get to a place where things are really not working very well at all and our old values that we used to live by uh, are kind of cut loose we realize that they're not working so we we start to let go of them but we don't yet have any new values to grab onto so it's that's a bit like being adrift without a a sail or a motor uh, and not being able to direct your own uh, progress and uh, in that place of chaos we the pressure that we're subjected to starts to bring about changes in our system so physical changes they can and usually are can be um, including changes to our neurochemistry changes to our neural networking and those sorts of things and eventually the the tension and that change process will give us access to some insights so we'll get clues about which direction to head in the kind of changes that we need to make in order to resolve our issues 
and eventually we'll have a breakthrough. And this change path is usually called revolutionary change because it leads mm-hmm. us to a place of feeling stuck and trapped. And with the sudden insights, the breakthroughs, we get to break out um, and break through our obstacles into the next stage, which is the renewal phase. And because we've seen the light, we've seen uh, you know where we need to head in the renewal phase, we're re-energized, where we become excited, and we're looking forward to what we know is our eventual destination. Although we might not have a, a clear picture of what that looks like, we mm. at least know the general direction that we're heading in. Mm. Uh, and then eventually with time and integration, we reach a place of new stability. And that place of new stability is typically a place of being more capable, having greater coping capacity than the stability we started at. So it's a new stability, it's not the old stability. Uh, and in that change process, ultimately we're going through growth mm. and becoming more than we were and uh, expanding our perception and our capacities. And so at each step in that change process, there are emotions that come along with uh, the experience of change. Um, and I think it's before we just uh, before we go yes. through what those emotions are, it's important just to, to go back to this, uh, fear of change because that's a very big factor right now. Uh, globally, we are we have entered into uh, a radical change process, which is um, a paradigm shift, and it's a move beyond the old scientific industrial mindset and way of living. That way of viewing the world, which was uh, extremely rational. In fact, it's probably the peak of rationality in terms of human evolution in that uh, scientific industrial era where we were so rational that we actually downplayed anything that couldn't be seen or measured on a scale or a gauge and uh, went through a very materialistic uh, phase, which which was in many respects um, uh, absent any deep spirituality for a lot of people. Mm. You know, I think that in the, the sort of real scientific uh, materialistic worldview, there's not a lot of room for anything that's not mm. material. Mm. Uh, or, you know, have, have so obviously a substance to it, yeah. and so um, a lot of the the religious and spiritual influence that we had in previous eras didn't go away. The the old paradigms take a long time to go away. They're very persistent. They were still around, but they played less of a role in everyday life for a lot of people uh, than they had in previous eras. And so, um, with the the very clear indications we're getting now globally that our old systems are failing to cope. They're no longer solving the problems uh, that the way they used to. There is a general increase in fear across the board, and I, I think it's fair to say that the, the fear is really about uh, the unknown. And ultimately, if you dig really, really deep, it's a fear of not surviving. Yeah. It's a fear of okay, maybe I won't make it through this. Whatever this change is going to be, you know, I don't know what the nature of the change is going to be. I don't know where it's going to take us uh, as a species. And, and probably one of the biggest uh, areas where that fear of change is showing up is around climate change. Mm. And we saw, the, of course, the big school strike uh, yeah. last week around that, which happened around the world. Uh, and uh, it's, it's important also to remember that um, fear is a very healthy signaling mechanism that has you know, developed as part of our evolution. And uh, like all emotions, it's an information system, a signaling system, which is pointing our attention to something. And uh, it can be very, very healthy 
uh, you know, when somebody responds in an appropriate way to fear because it's, it's bringing our attention to something that we need to pay attention to that's perhaps threatening our physical safety uh, and um, it's useful in that respect. But when we allow it to, uh, to dominate, we can get taken away from the present moment into a place of what-ifs and uh, our imagination can get carried away and we can overreact. And, uh, and actually slow down our own change process by resisting the change instead of uh, opening up to it. Yeah. I mean, there's a, an article in the, in the conversation uh, from Saturday, just gone, after the Friday and marches around the world of strike um, by Blanche Verley. It's called The Fear of Climate Change is Transforming Young Identities. And it, uh, and it proposes that what you're talking about, this, this, feel, <coughs> this uh, fear, this existential whiplash, as one term it has here, mm. is going on. Uh, and it is now also sort of leaking into um, the adults and to other people too. So, Yeah, it, you know, I, I would actually yeah. uh, suggest that it was the other way, way around. Right. The, the adults felt the fear first and leaked it so. into the kids. Mm-hmm. Yeah, true. Um, but it's interesting because it, it, it starts to look at, you know, I think just the very fact that it's actually looking at the emotions itself, this article, is, is pretty interesting. It is, yeah. And this is an indicator of the shift that we're going through, this shift from the the sort of materialistic scientific industrial way to what is a very humanistic emerging paradigm, the postmodern paradigm. Uh, And uh, it's redirecting our focus onto the human experience and particularly onto our own inner experience, our emotions. We're becoming more sensitive to our own emotions and to other people's emotions Mm. as part of the shift. Yes, indeed. I mean, this article also talks ultimately about cultural transformation, and that's really what's going on, isn't it? Yes. yes. Culture itself is seriously uh, troubled. You've got a lot of holes in it, so to speak, uh, and the only way really forward, irrespective of, of uh, what you believe, is to some degree an actual transformation in the, in the totality of Earth culture at this time, and that seems to be where we're moving now. Absolutely, and the bottom line is that the old value set, the old worldview and way of coping is failing, and it's failing because our world is becoming more complex and largely due to the the massive connection we have now through our uh, web-based media. Yeah. I mean, also this article talks about, um, for young people, how climate change, for example, challenges the beliefs that, for example, humans are or can be separate from the non-human world. So that connectivity which is coming back, and I think certainly in the previous couple of hundred years, as you said earlier, we've lost a lot of contact with that, I guess, that spiritual aspect of of, yeah. uh, of Gaia of uh, of our place in the in the uh, in the system in the human in the um, ecological system here yeah that's right and our way of living changed radically if you think back before the scientific industrial era mm. era we were living in an agricultural world mm. uh, and you know where where agriculture was you know the, the main kind of uh, in, industrious work mm. and uh, we were very much more connected to plants and, and the natural world there and the, the modern scientific industrial brought us into larger concentrations in cities, uh, gave us concrete, and uh, we, you know, it became very easy for us to shut ourselves away from the yeah. natural world. It also says that climate change challenges the beliefs that individual humans have significant control over the world and their lives. That's another one. And thirdly, if you work hard, you will have a bright future. So that that um, almost dystopian feeling that's arising in, in what we're seeing certainly in young people now that actually doesn't it's it's irrelevant you can't work hard and do what you're supposed to do and what you're told to do because there is no future and that's what it looks like and that's what it feels like to them 
your elected representatives care about you. So this is this is kind of very healthy, isn't it? All these questions now that are coming about by uh, by young people. And I had one of them here on the Friday show talking about this for the for the climate change strike here in Byron, talking from that very perspective, you know, of a kind of very articulate but kind of hopelessness and despair that's arising in people. Yeah, it's and essentially, it, you know, it's what I was referring to before as the what ifs, yeah. uh, getting lost in the what ifs and not actually looking out the window and saying that okay, well, well, things aren't so bad really. Um, sure, there are things that we need to pay more attention to and things that we need to change, but, uh, you know, it's, we, we haven't quite gone to hell in a handbasket just yet. Yeah. And uh, you know, I think it's really important to remember that and, and part of our response to the challenge of change and remembering that this is a natural evolutionary dynamic. It's a natural thing, so it's not a, it's, you know, nothing's wrong. This is what happens when people encounter change and this is a natural trajectory that we take uh, and uh, we can navigate that landscape much uh, more effectively if we understand what to expect so mm. if we know what the you know we have a map basically uh, and we know what to expect and um, we remain present to what is in the moment and mm. present to to what's going on for ourselves rather than getting carried away with horror stories and that's essentially what a lot of this is about is uh, horror stories that okay that happened somewhere else or it happened it might happen um, you know in the case of the the climate change story um, what's being put out there, this idea that the world is going to fry and we all won't be able, you know, won't be surviving, has never happened in the history of humanity. So it's an extreme uh, story that's being put around, which, which really, despite uh, the, you know, the common discussion in the public arena, really doesn't have much of a solid scientific substance to it. The science is very uncertain, in my opinion. Um, and what we need to do in order to cope better is to actually come back to being present, being here now. And uh, you know, noticing what is actually going on, and not uh, mm. getting carried away with someone else's imagined scenario. I think one of the one of the big issues, too, besides fear, is guilt, because there is this rising feeling in many people that we're guilty for doing what we're doing on the planet. And yeah. of course, you know, you could uh, no doubt you can argue that there's a truth there to that. There is some truth to there that. There is some truth there to is that. Some truth Absolutely. To that. But, it, but again, it's a matter of that being overblown. So you know, people who are popping into this new value set have a, a much greater um, connection to nature and their direct you know their attention is being directed to nature and the planet and so they're really noticing very strongly the impact that we've had in the previous era and there's strong rejection of that and that's a very healthy thing because mm-hmm. those things do need to change yes yeah, yeah indeed I've got a couple of texts in uh, already, and uh, you can text us here. 043734 comes off a computer. Ben has written, not sure if I can make sense of this uh, entirely. I'll read it, though. Hey, guys, been trying to work out the underlying process of Graves' evolutionary mapping in the most basic but broadest form. This is what I've come up with. Mind and matter changes our life conditions. Life conditions lead to experience. Experience generates information, data. Information, data shapes thinking. Thinking provokes emotions and actions. Emotions and actions affect mind and matter. Mind and matter changes our life conditions. Repeat, is this how the complexity line interacts with consciousness and environment? Uh, I think it's essentially correct, Ben, yeah. And, uh, you know, while it sounds linear, the way that Nick's read that out and the way that you've written it, it it's actually... You know, it's my works, reading, it's false. It, it, it's, uh, it's cyclic and yes. it works in both directions. So sometimes it's that we change ourselves in response to life conditions and that happens in the communally oriented paradigms. So mm. they're the 
even numbered layers in Graves' model, uh, like tribal, um, mm. agricultural, absolutistic, and the current emerging yeah. humanistic, network-centric. In those community-oriented uh, layers or paradigms, what happens is that we have like a radar that scans our external world, our life conditions, and then we look to uh, change ourselves internally in order to fit with what they're calling for. And in the uh, individually oriented systems, so uh, the even number, sorry, the odd numbered ones, uh, which are hunter-gatherer, the egocentric warlike, the modern scientific industrial, it's the opposite way around. So yes. we are uh, looking at what we need, what we want, and then uh, attempting to change the world, change our life conditions to fit with what we need or want. So it, it alternates like a kind of a pendulum that swings backwards and forwards as we go up through the layers. Yeah. You're tuned to Future Sense with Nick Jeans and Steve McDonald. Engage, emerge, activate, and spiral up. Yes, that's where you are. It's uh, 9.42 here on Future Sense with Steve and Nick. And uh, we're talking about um, the emotions that are attached to, that drive, that um, flush through us all in regards to change, and particularly when we start to fear change. And it's very interesting too, and uh, we're going to be talking a little bit about Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, who you're probably familiar with, folks out there, a person who taught uh, many, many people about death and dying. because she has a uh, an interesting uh, piece about the roller coaster of change itself, and what struck me about this is the high expectations or the the, the really big expectations that people will have about change, which is a fear driven shock, mourning, fight, flight, disorientation, and so on, and then the realistic expectations, which are a much more um, healthy response to change that comes forward and that i find that really interesting straight away just that it is interesting nick and mm. you know the expectations don't necessarily need to be fear driven although they certainly are you know in the in the present day with a lot of the current affairs that we're seeing uh they can be it can be the opposite of that so that you know mm. people can have uh, very positive expectations and the the shock comes when if they don't show up, you know, if they're yeah. expecting something amazing and then something amazing doesn't show up, then they can go into shock around yeah. that as well. So yeah. it, it can, with all of this stuff, you know, it can work in both ways, mm. in, in two directions. It's interesting to talk about um, Dr. Elizabeth Kubler-Ross and yes. uh, what led her to do her work. So she's most famous for having done a tremendous amount of research around the uh, stages of grief yeah. and particularly working with terminally ill mm. people and looking at the, the psychological uh, stages that they went through as they came to terms with the fact that they were dying uh, you know, from the initial shock of, of finding out about it through to the acceptance um, in most cases. And she was born in Zurich. She's a, a Swiss-American uh, psychiatrist, uh, or she was. She passed away in 2004. And, of course, death is probably the biggest change that we face as humans uh, and something that you know, sits in the background for all of us throughout our lives. And uh, as a, a young person uh, growing up in Zurich, Switzerland, uh, she was, of course, exposed to World War II and she became involved in refugee relief work in Zurich mm. and later visited one of the German uh, concentration, concentration camps, yeah. uh, death camps and obviously was exposed to that and, and uh, clearly that had a huge impact on her. And I can tell from her interests and her general approach to her work that she was an early adopter of the, the Layer 6 mm. worldview, so mm. uh, quite 
probably we're now entering as a as a, as a species at a global level. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and it's a worldview that's been around for quite a long time. Mm. You know, the, the earliest uh, historical evidence goes back to at least the mid 1800s, and quite possibly prior to that. You know, there were people popping out of the layer five materialistic worldview into this humanistic worldview, mm. and uh, the strong focus, of course, is on the human experience and emotions and as we grow through these different layers of consciousness each time we grow to a new layer there's an expansion that occurs and that expansion can expand our our perception our our senses and also our capacity to uh, feel and process this new information that we're exposed to and so um, we can grow to greater depths of being able to relate to other people and love other people and those sorts of things mm. There's strong evidence for that. And uh, she became interested in the process of death and particularly the psychological changes that occurred around that. And uh, she says, uh, or she she did say that she thought she'd probably taught about 125,000 students on death and dying courses courses, uh, during her life, which is an incredible effort. And so one of the things that we benefit from uh, is her mapping of the emotional states that we go through as we go uh, through change, particularly dramatic change, major change, transformational change. And often it can start with the shock of uh, realization that something's changing. Um, Again, you know, there's there's a broad spectrum of uh, what we can feel at these different parts of the change process. Sometimes if the change is subtle, it's just, as I said earlier in the show, you just wake up and feel like something's different and you're not quite sure what it is. But when it's a sudden radical change, it can be shocking uh, and we can get immediately flung into um, fight or flight response or deep mourning, uh, disorientation. Uh, typical of uh, sudden major change, and certainly with um, events in, in Christchurch. And yes, I was going to say exactly. Would be experiencing that, yeah. those sorts of things, mm. uh, you know, th- things that were radically unexpected and completely out of the ordinary. Um, and then, as time passes and we start to respond to that change process, and we make changes, which often is this uh, regressive search for, you know looking for ways where it was better in the past and can we resurrect those things and that can lead to uh, a sense of nostalgia of of longing for the past Um, often people will as it progresses they'll start to feel anger uh, and certainly turmoil sometimes Uh, it can go to rage uh, um, about the loss that's occurred whether it's a physical loss or just a loss of comfort a loss of uh, being able to cope and then depending on uh, their opportunities to express those really strong emotions and, and how they're able to manage their own emotions. And, and you know, that really is a skill set that we learn as we go through life and get more experience you know, in our earlier uh, stages of life, particularly as we're growing through those pre-rational stages of consciousness where we haven't got a, a really strong rational capacity to moderate what we're mm. feeling uh, and to make sense of it rationally um, sometimes we can we can really get tossed around and go through a lot of turmoil um, and if we if we don't express those strong emotions when they're arising then uh, we can fall into depression and uh, sometimes we can also feel guilt uh, about what's happened and feel like in somehow we have some responsibility for yes. what occurred yes. um, and uh, you know, I've seen a few cases of that over the years, and it's it's interesting, you know, how the mind 
uh, can take us to those different places. And some, you know, from an outsider's perspective, on the cases that I've seen, you know, I, I've looked at it and I thought, really, you know, it's it's fairly radical to think that you're actually responsible for that because really you were just a, a witness and, you know, you weren't involved in in the way that it happened. And yet we can we can still go to those places of feeling guilty. You know, I I didn't do something. I should have done something. Is a typical yes. response. A guilt response. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Um, and so uh, feelings of loss. And uh, when we reach the, the bottoming out of uh, the roller coaster, as it's sometimes called, this changed trajectory, um, there's, of course, a, a feeling of needing to let go of what was. And whether that's simply a, a life condition, you know, a, a particular time that we remember as being comfortable, uh, where we could cope with all of the challenges that were thrown at us. Um, and letting go of that feeling of, of being comforted, but it also in, in radical change, sometimes it can be a matter of letting go of physical things, people who may have been lost to us and those sorts of things. Uh, and um, often in that deep, chaotic place, uh, we can also become somewhat detached. And I think this is what we were, we were talking about before in terms of the large-scale change that is going on at the moment and uh, getting lost in these... Uh, thought bubbles of what if you know what if this happens what what if what occurred over there happens here where I live uh, you know how will I cope maybe I won't cope maybe I won't survive in some cases mm. you know particularly around the the, uh, the climate issue that's a big feeling at the moment I think for a lot of people and what can happen is we can actually become detached from reality uh, and and lost in these scenarios of you know what if this happens and I think uh, as I alluded to earlier, it's important to know that there are you know, really useful strategies that we can employ in such times. And one of them is simply the practice of being present. And uh, this is where having some kind of regular contemplative practice can be really, really useful. Yes. And uh, you know, at, at, during times of change, and, and it is a, a radical uh, change process that the whole world is entering into at the moment. So re really, this applies to everybody. You know, I, I strongly recommend if you don't have a regular daily contemplative practice, uh, that it's very, very worthwhile and it will uh, multiply your coping capacity simply by me, mm. being able to sit quiet in the mind and be present mm. uh, to yeah. what's going on right now. Mm. And uh, also, while we're on the, the coping mechanisms, uh, part of this shift that we're going through from layer five to layer six, so from this kind of materialistic scientific industrial worldview to the much more deeply humanistic uh, emotionally focused, uh, human experience focused way of being human that is emerging. And of course that many of us uh, out there listening have already you know, transformed into in the past. I mean, this is, this is a, a way of being human. As I said before, it's been around for quite a while, but uh, still not the dominant mainstream um, paradigm globally. Um, so, so one of the, the processes that that change is taking us through is uh, to a greater awareness of our body and a greater re connection with our body. And I guess in a way you could say that's really part and parcel of this reconnection with nature. Yes, exactly. And the, the disconnection yeah. with nature that's happened mm. during the scientific industrial world where we've, you know, we've invented these new ways of living, uh, which you know, sometimes put us in a concrete box in a high-rise building, for, for example, Morning Ross. Uh, and uh, to an extent, you know, that, that's, there's a potential there of us... Um, being disconnected with nature in, in 
simply because our feet aren't on the ground. Mm. And, uh, you know, we're living in a, a local environment where nature has, uh, has been radically transformed into paved roads and mm. concrete footpaths and concrete buildings and uh, very few trees and no animals except for dogs and those sorts of things. So um, it's, a, it's a normal part of the shift right now, if you're feeling this, to have your attention being directed to nature, to the natural world, to ecology, um, particularly to the impact that we've had on the natural world through mm. the scientific industrial era and the toll that that's taken and the impact that it's having on our own lives and our health. Mm. And uh, we are being directed by the evolutionary process to pay more attention to that, to change the way that we're living, to, to start to live uh, with greater awareness of nature to start to have more concern for the impact that we're having on nature. How does technology fit into this equation? Because as you're speaking now about the reconnection with nature, which is awesome and fantastic and a good thing always to remind ourselves of and to remind our listeners of, and most of you out there no doubt uh, have those sort of practices, and especially in a region like this. But I'm now thinking also as you were speaking about the place of advanced technology, AI and the like, as we move forward, uh, which on the surface of it would seem to be um, disconnected still from Earth, from the Earth and the natural world, even though, of course, it comes from the natural world, whatever um, substances are being used to produce something. So how do, how do you make a rationale of those two parts of human experience now, this return to connection to nature and this extremely accelerated um, technological uh, revolution that we're in the middle of? I think it's important to remember that the reason that we're going through this evolutionary shift at the moment uh, is quite tied to the development of technology because it's our technology which came out of the scientific industrial era that has allowed us to be more aware of what's going on in the world, to connect with people you know, in faraway places and get to know them, have discussions with them, uh, and of course to have access to pretty much Almost, you know, everything that's been ever written, all the knowledge in the world is is arguably uh, almost accessible completely mm. on the internet. So mm. um, these technologies have actually brought us to where we are. And if it wasn't for the technologies, we wouldn't have this expanded awareness mm. of our impact on the world, our impact on nature, mm. and uh, we wouldn't be feeling uh, so strongly the need to change what we're doing. So technology has been a part of it, and there is a when we go through a paradigm shift there is always a strong rejection of the previous way of living and the risk with that is that you throw the baby out with the bathwater and it's this is very common you know it, it regularly happens um, and we get radical uh, extremes of opinion that occur during the change process because of these things that we're just talking yeah. about the yeah. shock yeah. the disorientation the anger of losing what was those sorts of things can lead people to extremes usually does actually yeah. uh, you know if you look back to the, the previous paradigm shift from the agricultural era to the modern scientific scientific industrial it was full of large-scale violence wars the american civil war was was a direct conflict between the new paradigm and the old paradigm at that time and there are many, many other examples. Uh, radical things occurred. Uh, you know, I'm thinking of the um, um, Spanish Inquisition by the Catholic Church. Yes. All, all sorts of crazy things. <laughs> and and you know, these are routinely a part of humans adjusting to change. And we are, we're reaching a point in our evolution where our understanding and our depth of uh, perspective on nature itself and the natural cycles of change that apply to us 
is giving us the potential to navigate the process much more smoothly. And uh, we, we will see in the future that we're able to go through radical change in a, a much smoother way because we understand the terrain. We, we only recently have developed maps of this terrain and we can predict what's going to happen to us to a fair extent because mm. it always follows you know this this pathway that we're discussing yeah i mean it's interesting when you're talking about opinion and i think i mentioned a, a book i have at the moment i still haven't finished reading it but i'm dabbling into it called the tyranny of opinion it's also uh, about the tyranny of outrage and, and the tyranny of offense that we've now dropped back and re- have recourse to those those you know safer places of old that I guess and you can flesh that out, but yeah. that that seem to work. I can be offended by outraged by something I don't like. Yeah. Um, I can have a very strong opinion about it and defeat defend my opinion to the death. Um, but meanwhile, um, everything's moving so fast and changing so fast that uh, somehow those opinions and outrage and offence often seem somehow to me anyway sort of out of place in its expression. They, they are exactly, and this mm. is a product of this regressive value search Mm. so when we go through the shock of change and we realize that oh my god things aren't the way they used to be the first response is usually to go back in our mind to a a previous era when things were great and uh, as as i always say we hear it all the time from the politicians let's make america aware of it great again Um, and if we look at those old value sets they are less expansive Mm and more limiting than you know the one that we've just come out just coming out of and so uh, there's an evolutionary reason behind us going back to those things because it, incre- it increases the tension and actually speeds up the change process yeah. which ultimately is better for everybody yeah. yes. um, but what it what it's doing right now if we take a you know, current example of this uh, movement beyond the modern scientific industrial to postmodern humanistic Uh, we're looking back to the agricultural absolutistic era where everything was black and white. We lived in a society that was class-based, so extremely divided, uh, and we saw uh, fundamentalist viewpoints where people lived in a bubble of their own social class. They uh, thought in a way that was very black and white. They abided by a strict set of rules for living life, which uh, were not always, but were often religious rules, uh, and uh, strongly rejected anything other than what they knew, their one single way of living in, you know, properly or truthfully. And so we're seeing the reemergence of that right now because of this regressive search process, and that's why we're seeing we're seeing extreme left-wing and right-wing uh, expressions and people uh, speaking as if they're living in an isolated bubble uh, and uh, they're rejecting everything that's not exactly like them. Mm. Yeah. In, um, in response also to the shootings in New Zealand, the, the wonderful Stan Grant uh, has also written uh, yesterday um, in, a, in a piece entitled Christchurch, Christchurch Shootings Remind Us That In The War Of Identity the casualties aren't strangers, they're our neighbours. And he puts uh, to us straight away that, uh, you know, th- these people who've been murdered in this way, there could be anybody, could be our neighbours, it could happen anywhere. But what he does come down to is this notion of the war of identity. And I'll just quote this to see what you feel about this. We are all potentially prey to the war of our time, the war of identity. And I say this because when you're talking about Layer 4 and that, that uh, the author- authoritarian uh, period of our evolution, 
clearly uh, we had an identity there that was very fixed and solid and safe and secure and and was given to us. It was given from above or given yeah. by the church or given by the, the king or whatever. But now, of course, where we construct our own identities and our responsible identities through the, the, uh, the mediums of technology in particular. So he says that the, the war of identity is an identity forged out of resentment and a thirst for vengeance. It is identity that draws its narrative from the old festering hatreds of history. Also true. It is identity that pits us against each other, that divides us into our tribes. It is a 21st century law of the jungle, something deeply primal that leads us to tear each other limb from limb. It's pretty extreme here, Stan. Look around our world. We are putting up new walls. We are militarizing our borders. We fear the stranger and retreat into old certainties and closed communities. And it's a pretty strong but quite an accurate description of where it, many it is, of us now yeah. are. It is quite accurate, and that the you know the law of the jungle remarks relate to layer three, which is literally living according to the law of the jungle. You know, the world is a, is a jungle; you've got to fight to survive, and it's a pre-rational place where we uh, respond immediately to our urges and instincts, and uh, don't go through a rational moderation process. So we don't rationally think about cause and effect; we just feel overwhelmed by. Uh, our emotions, mm. our instincts, our urges in the moment and usually act on them. Mm. And this, this, of course, is uh, very dangerous in many cases and most likely applies to what happened in Christchurch is somebody that's an example of somebody who was clearly overwhelmed by emotions, urges and instincts in the moment and act on them without stopping to think of the implications. And it's important to remember that when we're in these uh less complex value sets, particularly layer three that I'm talking about, is uh, we experience a, a shutting down of the rational mind. Um, and uh, in an evolutionary sense, when we were originally growing through that layer, it was prior to the complete development of the frontal lobes of the brain, which brought that rational moderation yeah. capacity. Uh, and it's, it's also a similar situation we find ourselves when we get shocked into fight or flight where the brain shuts down. And most people will have had some experience of this where they are suddenly shocked or suddenly very, very afraid for some reason and they can't think straight. Yeah. Uh, they're just acting on you know, uh, instincts in the moment. Yeah. And, and that, that is the nature of being human in that particular layer of consciousness. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's also uh, the case, as you're alluding to, uh, with regards to the, the tribal instinct that we have uh, in uh, in layer six that we're moving into, but the the problem is often that we sort of slip back to early iterations of that. And uh, I love this piece from um, from uh, what's her name, uh, Professor Chua, from uh, one of these articles too. And she says that tribal instinct is not just an instinct to belong; it is also an instinct to exclude. Yeah, and I thought that was really, really important because you know there's so many people now who talk about tribes and their group, their tribe, their family, you know, their, which is wonderful. But by inherently, when you say that, you're you, you can be excluding someone else. You can be putting someone else over there, and that other tribe out there that's not not right. Not. It's usually the case, and uh, often in this transition from five to six into the, the postmodern humanistic, uh, because we're moving from an era of uh, very, very strong individual orientation was all about me, I, and my personal success, and usually at, to the detriment of people who weren't successful, yeah. of course. 
um, we are looking to remember what it's like to live in community. And it, again, it's normal when we're going through the change process to think back to older iterations. And so it's, it's actually quite useful, quite valuable to look back to older ways of being in community. And that's what occurs. We, we think back to, okay, you know, the, the traditional tribal way of living yes. or, or perhaps the, the old agricultural village setting, you know, everybody knew everybody and, and it was a tight-knit community. And these things have, can be extremely useful. So, um, you know, it's not that they're bad, mm. but like anything, if you take it to an extreme, then people can start to think that we're not just learning from these old ways. We actually have to go back and be like that. Mm. Uh, and that is an extreme but not uncommon thought that people have when they're going through this transition yes. as well. We, we should be like those people there. Romanticizing some Romanticizing it, yeah. Mm. And, and uh, because the person usually hasn't literally lived in that particular setting, they don't really know what it was like. But, it, you know, if uh, I can say from personal experience, if you go and, and visit countries where people are still living in that traditional tribal uh, set of life conditions, it's a pretty harsh place to be, you know. And uh, quite seriously, people who don't belong to the tribe sometimes, in extreme cases, aren't even extended the full rights of being human. Um, And, you know, you get intertribal warfare and payback killings and those sorts of things. Um, and, and even within the tribal societies, you know, there are things that go on which we'd, we would regard as extreme, like um, scarification in, you know, ritual initiation and those sorts of things. So the reality is often lost. And, uh, but but let's, let's not forget that it is and can be extremely useful and educational to refer back to these old ways of being communal because they will help us uh, inform ourselves as to how to be communal in a new way but in a new way that is more capable and uh, has has greater richness than mm. the older iterations mm. of communal living in the past. As you're speaking, I'm thinking about the uh, the 90s here when uh, a lot of people who are still around and, and friends of mine went went completely feral for a while and went up into the hills and got their teepees and you know even took a bit of roadkill off off the off the off the highways oh, to eat and. I know, but then yeah. as years went by, as that sort of passed, you yeah. know, those same people, of course, are now living in Mullen Mill somewhere with a couple of kids, and their hair's short now, often, and you know, they've 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 changed. They went through that phase because yeah. something didn't work. Actually, I'm sure it was a great experience, and pe- people may argue that, but something didn't obviously work. Otherwise, they'd still be there. Clearly, yeah, clearly, and you know, it always comes down to the complexity of our life conditions, and the world seems to be constantly getting more complex and so these older ways while they offer us wonderful information and uh, we can learn from looking back and seeing how we lived then then they're really not a good match for the level of complexity that we face today they're not going to help us solve our complex problems yeah indeed you're tuned to future sense with steve mcdonald and nick jeans for all of you out there strangers in a strange land you're grokking future sense here on Bay FM. 10.18 on Future Sense, and thanks for your texts. We won't get to answer all of those texts because some of them are quite long and detailed, but uh, do appreciate your listening and your engagement with some of the ideas around Claire W. Graves. Because, of course, it's not for everybody. Um, that's also true, but it's a, it's a fascinating model which uh, certainly fleshed out and deepened in 
one's own being certainly uh, helps with uh, information overload. I segued nicely there yeah. because because <laughs> it's very true that today we are in a, in a situation living in a world where there is just so much information and as much as anything else, it's hard to figure out what one should be looking at, reading, digesting, uh, and then uh, what is actually true, real, and trust trustworthy and the like. So it's a complex world. Uh, and all of you out there, all of us, I think, are, are to some degree fraught with this uh, with this um, information overload that we we're experiencing. It's a big challenge, and it's one of the the key drivers of the uh, evolutionary tension. Of course, that's pushing us along. Mm. And the best thing we can do to cope is, of course, work on ourselves. And the faster we can move our you know own development process, the better we'll be able to cope. And it, we have to grow through these layers in sequence. So it really comes down to where you are personally and what is the next step for you in your own growth yeah. and and if you're in the transition from five to six where you're leaving behind the you know what has been the conventional world for the last few hundred years and moving into this more expanded postmodern humanistic network centric way of being human then the next step is to move from a, a rational process of looking at all your options and assessing which, which is the best option, which is really becoming pretty much impossible. If you you know if you want to go on the internet and look at options, I mean, there's too many options there. You'd spend the rest of your life reading them. Uh, and so uh, the next way of coping beyond layer five is to then form a trusted network of peers, mm. and then you've you've got like a network of brains. Uh, who are able to uh, look at and digest a whole, you know, much more information than you could as an individual. And so you benefit from the group mind. Uh, and, and that is the next way of coping. And we know from the map that we have, from the research that has been done, not just by Graves, but by a whole bunch of developmental psychology researchers, that uh, the next iteration after layer six is actually moving beyond the rational-minded approach to what is known as the transrational, mm. where we grow through a process of learning to tap into uh, interdimensional information mm. uh, in what I call a, a, a quantum process of knowing of actually just mm. direct direct uh, access to insights. Is Would you say that the uh, reconnection with nature that we're talking about in layer six is a, is a ground for that next step that you're talking about that layer seven that interdimensional um transrational approach absolutely nice pun there too i must say um uh-huh. <laughs> uh, yes absolutely and and that is in in the sort of long-term perspective of human evolution uh, one of the key roles of six is to lay that solid ground for what graves called the momentous leap yeah. and you can't leap off quicksand right so you have to have solid ground mm. Uh, and hence the natural direction to reconnect with mm. nature and to be grounded, mm. quite literally. Yeah. Uh, get your, you know, your bare feet on the ground and uh, connect with the Earth's frequency, if, if we want to talk from a physics perspective. Yes. Uh, and there's great value in that. And, and particularly in a time where we see people getting carried away with fanciful ideas of what might happen, uh, which are essentially not grounded 
you know, if you dig into these ideas, whether it be prejudiced racial ideas about the nature of the other, or whether it be ideas about where the Earth's climate is going to be in 100 years' time, if you dig deeply into them, you'll find that many of the foundations are not absolutely grounded at all. They've come down to someone's supposition about what might happen if... And, and I'm seeing uh, the media, you know, being flooded at the moment with these stories about what if, you know. Uh, I've, I've come across a number of stories in the last couple of months about uh, what if the climate keeps on trending towards warming for the next 100 years uh, and then the colour of the oceans is going to change, you know, was one scientific study I saw, which is, which is really actually quite ridiculous because they're starting with a, a false foundation, you know, an assumption about a trend which, if you really dig into the science, is not confirmed. It's just fear-driven. Um, and, you know, if you dig into it and look at the, the mechanisms, you can understand why it's fear-driven because some people have looked at the science. They've seen, oh, it's getting hot in a whole bunch of places. Maybe this is going to continue. And if, if it is going to continue, then we need to act now to try and change it. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, that's a, a reasonable deduction process, but it's still an if. It's still, it still come, comes down to someone's if. If this happens, then we need to do this, you know. It's like somebody saying... Um, Gee, you know, we live on pretty flat land here. Maybe uh, we should build a big, tall tower so we can, you know, climb up it uh, if it floods. And that may happen. You know, it's a, it's a possibility, but uh, it's based on someone's supposition and not necessarily on any solid information. Hmm. Yeah. I mean, this and this process is really uh, endemic in our thinking now, isn't it? This this idea and, and driven, as you're saying, by these feelings of, of fear and uh, and guilt also and depression and all feelings of loss and all these things um, that in, in a way we sort of, uh, it's a self-fulfilling pro- prophecy, I guess. We, we continually generate these what-ifs, what the worst-case scenarios, and um, yeah. and tend to then hook into our, uh, through our emotional bodies into these, uh, into the responses to that. And either find ourselves sort of getting very angry and and perhaps even sometimes aggressive with response to that, or finding oneself completely um, uh, mute and uh, in, in, uh, unable to actually act. Yeah, uh, uh, I, you know, I think um, it's useful for me to draw on my experience uh, in the military mm. and and also in martial arts uh, because those are two sets of life conditions which are radical in their um, tendency to change you know very very quickly from one extreme to another and so to to be flexible and to be able to cope uh, you can't run off with a scenario and act on it otherwise you'll fail like for example if you know if you're uh, let's let's take a uh, competition uh, mixed martial artist you know if you're most worried about being hit in the head and so you put your arms over your head guess what you're going to get hit in the stomach or, or in the legs right um, I mean that's a that's a, a fairly simple example but the same concept applies to large-scale challenges for humanity if we get carried away with the idea that one thing's going to happen we put all of their effort into preparing for that if we're wrong then we're going to ca- get caught out very very badly in fact we're going to be worse off than if we if we did nothing mm-hmm. Uh, because we might actually have to prepare for the exact opposite. Mm. And so the best thing we can do is to essentially stay in the middle ground but, but stay super aware uh, of the, the signals and the signs in both directions, in every direction, in as many directions as we can cover. Uh, and to you know, monitor the change process, stay aware, be ready to act, 
uh, but don't actually uh, get carried away in one direction until we're fully 100% certain that that's actually what we need to prepare for. Mm. Well, we, we, we've been talking about Elizabeth, Elizabeth Kubler-Ross a little bit earlier and her roller coaster of change, and I guess you're sort of talking about that other uh, aspect of change whereby it actually is a positive thing and actually can stimulate um, high-level um, engagement with and presence with the process of change and uh, and therefore be creative in doing so yeah what we're we're moving to is the the second uh, phase of the change process where where we've gone through this uh, the, the shock and uh, the emotions that arise as a result of radical change and descended into this area of chaos where everything becomes loose so our our coping systems mm. come apart to some extent uh, which which means in the short term that we're less able to cope but yet that looseness creates the opportunity for things to be rebuilt in different structures, uh, particularly things like our neural networks, our neurochemistry, those sorts of things. Mm. Uh, so we can develop more complex and capable coping mechanisms. And then once we have the breakthrough, so some, once we, we get those insights, and um, it's worth mentioning very briefly that uh, altered states are a very important part of that insight process. They always have been for humanity, and it's why during times of change, people always turn to some kind of psychoactive yes. substance. You know, yeah. um, I've had a really hard week. I don't know what's going on. I need to go and have a beer, uh, for example. How many times have we heard that over the years? And what's really going on there is there's a, a subconscious knowing that an altered perspective on the world is going to create an opportunity for insights, uh, and and perhaps ease our mind. You know, uh, from being overly stressed. Someone else, someone wrote in a little way back here on our text line and said, Dutch courage, which of course is alcohol, is unfortunately the only way some people can change their mindset to approach the fear of rejection, for example. So I guess he's sort of saying in the same sort of area there. That, that's true, yeah. yeah. And, um, you know, it depends on our personal understanding of how to use altered states uh, as to how that process can pan out. And sometimes, of course, we can get lost in them. Uh, you know, if we, we've never been taught how to constructively yeah. use uh, tools for altered states of consciousness, we can get lost in them and uh, and actually slow our change process down as well. So mm. with all of these things that, that we're discussing, you know, there, there's no one right way. Uh, we're not saying you should do this or you should do that. What we're saying is that in times of change, there are all these possibilities. There's a general landscape that we can really, you know, predict to a certain extent that we're going to go through this descent into things falling apart and we're going to come through a process of insights and reorganization within ourselves and then move into an integration and a, a future stabilization and we can anticipate that so it can be useful to have the map because when you're going through the worst of it you can say well i know this is going to pass you know it's not going to last forever i'm going through this process i can expect at some point to have an insight and that things are going to uh, take a turn for the better and uh, on the the upswing of the roller coaster I think, yeah. which i think is what you were alluding to before yes. um once we have the insight, of course, uh, it can be a massive relief. Uh, and, you know, it, it takes the pressure off. It, it's, it's like sort of taking the, the top off the pressure cooker and letting the pressure out. And all of a sudden, even though things haven't fully resolved themselves, we have an idea of which direction we need to head in and we get a sense that things are changing. Uh, and uh, typically that comes with excitement. Usually there's a re-energizing uh, whereas you know, on the on the downhill side, you know, we're kind of losing energy and descending into a, a static place, uh, similar to the changing of the se changing of the seasons into winter, as we said earlier. But now it's springtime; things start to grow again. 
the grass is greener and that kind of stuff. And gradually as we go through that integration process, we're more able to solve our problems. We can refine our new ways. We're, we're learning new ways in the process. So we have a, a, a new mindset. We have a new set of values. We're looking for different things in life. We're motivated by different things. And like anything, when we get thrust into a new environment, we have to learn how to navigate it. And so in the integration process, we're learning how to be human in a different way. When we go through a transformational change, we're literally moving to a new way of being human. Uh, we're finding new tools and structures. We're connecting with different people who can teach us or who that we can rely on for support in this new way of living. And then slowly, as we consolidate, life becomes more stable. And eventually we get to a, a point of equilibrium where our coping capacity matches the problems that we have to solve yeah you're resonating right now on future sense with steve mcdonald and nick jeans oh yes indeed blues fest coming up very shortly and getting the draw for that if you are not a subscriber or you are a renewing subscriber for those tickets to the upcoming blues festival you're tuned to future sense it's 10 36 the last little time of today's show coming up pregnancy birth and beyond at 11 o'clock. Thanks for your texts. Uh, one person has written and just said, know thyself, Socrates. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And uh, someone else has written, we need to talk, really talk, and yet so much is blocked. Uh, what I see is the primary tension in the world at present. Your talks help facilitate this, and that's great work. Thank you. On guilt, you seem to dismiss its value, but I'm sure you mean to include that too. Thanks, brothers. Hmm. Yeah, good point. Good point. And, you know, it's important to understand that and this realization will come as we grow through you know, layer six and beyond, our emotions are actually an extremely sophisticated signaling mm. system mm. You know, that Indeed. has developed over tens of thousands of years, hundreds of thousands of years. And uh, we've just been through an era where they've been downplayed you know, in the materialistic scientific industrial era. Um, emotions and you know, being... Uh, guided by emotions, you know, was really poo-pooed. Yeah. You know, it was it was thought to be a weakness yeah. in that era. And things are transforming now. Things are changing, and so we need to stop and think about what will society look like in the future. And and clearly, our values are changing. We're attributing much more value to our human experience, our values, and our emotions. And part of what is going to come out of that, and is already coming out of it, and that's that's why I know about it. Yeah, because it's already happening, mm. um, is this realization that, wow, our emotions are an amazingly sophisticated signaling system. And many of us have, have grown up being taught mm. not to listen to them as if it's a bad thing. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, don't express your emotions, don't cry, don't do this. Uh, and yet uh, we're, we're losing all the value that they offer us. And if we can learn to connect with them, and that means connecting deeply with your body with your physical body because our physical body is the the media through which these signals come through feelings in the body uh, then we can learn to become more aware of our emotional signaling system and uh, talk to it connect with it make it a two-way communication process uh, and then employ our emotions much more effectively to guide us in life and give us greater coping capacity. So thanks, thanks for that little mm-hmm. nudge about guilt. That's it's a very good thing. You know, none, uh, n- none of our emotions are bad. They've all developed 
uh, through our evolution for a particular purpose. And all, all we need to do is to learn to pay attention to them and to respond appropriately to them, you know, give them the attention they deserve and act on it. Yes. That's interesting what you're saying because, of course, in the last era that we're now starting to move out of, layer five, uh, empathy, sympathy, even compassion were, were certainly downplayed emotions uh, other than when useful, you know, in a political or economic sense, you could, uh, you could argue too. So that rediscovery of those, those abilities to feel, not just yourself, but actually to feel into another, yep. starts to give us the opportunity on a global scale to ac- actually start to come up with real solutions, uh, grounded solutions, as you said before, to the real challenges that we have now. Absolutely, and we can expect a lot of things to change in society. I mean, if we look at, for example, Hollywood, which has a massive, massive cultural influence globally, and look at the themes that have been present in mm-hmm. movies yeah. you know, throughout the, that modern era and into the present day, and it, it, it never ceases to uh, amaze and, and disappoint me that even the, the most leading-edge movies that are coming out about the future, which are trying to feel into the future and feel you know, how society's changing, how humans are changing and those sorts of things, still have car crashes and gunfights in them. Yeah. You know, it's like there's this uh, mm-hmm. list, checklist that Hollywood has when they make a movie and you know, we're making a movie about this particular thing, it's all in the future, blah, 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 blah. That's really great, but make sure you get some gunfights in there and let's have a couple of car crashes or spaceship crashes, right? Uh, which is so representative of the the old era, and it's something that needs to radically change and will radically change, uh, you know, in the in the due course of things. Mm. Yeah. It's interesting hearing you speak of these things because being a, a, a military man, been in the army for twenty years or so, nearly twenty years, whatever, fifteen, 15 years, uh, and being being taught to kill, as you said to me off air today. Yeah. Uh, but you've turned so completely the opposite direction. Not that I imagine you joined the army to kill. No, but, I, uh, you, you know, know I, I think there's a again Hollywood is responsible for <laughs> you know the the general understanding of the military to be uh, the the American military and the way that it's employed. But um, I'm I'm very happy to say that my experience of the Australian military was radically different to what you see on TV. Uh, and uh, there was you know a tremendous amount of uh, constructive learning. Um, and and some wonderful shared experiences that happened for me when I was in the military. I was fortunate uh, not to to go to too many conflicts. I only went to one war, and the one war that I did go to was a, a humanitarian action where we were providing protection for uh, a starving population so that they Somalia. could be fed. Yeah, in, mm. in Somalia, and you know I'm I'm grateful that. Uh, if I had to go somewhere, that was you know the place which which felt to me like a worthy purpose. I I would have had great difficulty if I had still been in the army and be sent to places like Iraq and Afghanistan because I radically disagreed yeah. with the purpose behind those deployments. Yes. Um, yes. But but my own experience was uh, very constructive, and um, you know I I was fortunate that I I never had to use lethal force in the time that I was in the military, but I certainly witnessed that happening. And consequently, I think I'm better equipped than most people to speak about uh, that experience of being human and that urge that we've had in the past to kill each other for various reasons and the consequences uh, you know, of, of that for those who survive, um, which I've lived through myself, um, including about 20 years of suffering post-traumatic stress disorder, which uh, radically disrupted my life. Uh, meant that I couldn't work for quite a time and that I spent uh, you know, some years being quite disabled as a result of that and uh, have grown out the other side of it mm. um, you know, with, with a very, very deep understanding of what it's like to go through that and, and uh, 
that Vietnamese uh, philosopher uh, whose name I always have trouble uh, pronouncing, but it's something like that niche hand. Oh, oh like thick, that. thick net, yeah. So, yes. Yeah, you know the one I'm I know the about. one you're talking I'm about. Sure, I'm sure all the listeners, <laughs> or most of the listeners know what I'm talking about. There's a, a beautiful <laughs> quote uh, by him where he talks about exactly this topic. And coming from Vietnam, of course, it's a country with a, a troubled history in terms of all the conflict that went on there. Um, and he says that um, uh, there is tremendous hope for the world through war veterans to actually transform the way that we live and to move away from conflict because no one knows the reality of that mm. as a war veteran does. Mm. That's and, great. I, and I think that's, that's a really powerful thing to remember. Absolutely. Well, in the last 10 minutes or so that we have, uh, we want to give it a little bit of uh, some positive um, uh, examples or ideas about how we can move forward as individuals and as communities now. Yeah, I think change. so. Um, mm. Let's let's talk about personal coping strategies and yeah. also uh, large scale coping strategies. Yes. You know, some of the things that we're already seeing pop up in the media. You know, people calling for uh, an increase in uh, mental health services in mm. in, in our society. Yeah. You know, I think is a really important thing because when we we go through radical change, we d- we are challenged. Our mental health is well, often challenged. Clearly, I think a lot of people, especially in the Western world, are mentally men, mental health challenged at the moment, one way or the other. I think that's probably quite true, and we see that in so many ways. Yeah, and so um, we, we all have an opportunity to help change society in the coming years, and we can do that by um, expressing our our right to vote, uh, You know who we vote for, and voting in people who are displaying these new value sets where mm. uh, they have a you know a deep humanitarian aspect to their nature um, they're not going to um, spread and use strategies of fear to try and push people into voting for them um, you know where we are learning to discard that we're learning to see through these uh, what, what are really hidden agendas you know the, the agenda is uh, personal success for the politician mm. and they see the pathway uh, to personal success by gaining popular support by making everybody think that the world's a really dangerous place, mm. we can't trust these foreigners, they're not like us, and therefore uh, you, we need protection, you need to vote for me for yes. that reason. Uh, but people are you know, more than equipped now to, to see through that kind of stuff, most people, thank goodness. Yes, that's hope so. Of course, you, the, the prime example of that in Australian politics in recent times is the tamper affair with John Howard, who got himself elected in 20, 2001 by exactly what you're talking yeah, about. Of course, and that was around you know the time of 9-11 as well, where yes. there was a lot of fear and uncertainty about mm. the radical change which had occurred with this large-scale violence in a place that normally wasn't exposed to that in New York. Uh, and you were there for that, of course, Nick, as well. I was. I was there, yep. Um, and, uh, yeah, so so we need to just be careful we don't get carried away with these scenarios of what if that hap- this happens, what if that happens, because usually they're driven by fear. And I think that's a, fear is a, a tremendous... Uh, testing mechanism if you just stop for a moment and be present and think okay is this actually driven by fear and if it's driven by fear then most likely it's not useful you know fear fear, like all emotions has a purpose it is useful to help us avoid immediate danger Mm. but when we start building fearful scenarios way into the future uh, that actually have lost their groundedness um, then it's it's not useful because it distracts us from what we should be doing right now and, uh, and the things that are really important right now. So uh, first and foremost, whatever the topic is, it doesn't matter. Just ask yourself, is this fear-driven? And if it is fear-driven, then just realise that it's probably not fully grounded 
and uh, you know we need that's to really that's really good I mean it's paradoxical too because I think a lot of people are feeling now that the only way they can generate action and change is to run from those kind of uh, those kind of emotions fear and, and guilt and so yeah. forth so it's a, it's a bit tricky because if as you're saying I, I, I totally support you that instead of following the fear so to speak which is uh, I think we used to say in the new age world false evidence appearing real Absolutely. F-E-A-R yeah. um, if, if, we, if we're driven by that and then it isn't the grounded uh, direction that we're going in it might have some value here and there but it's not really the, the way that we should be looking exactly and mm. we've come from an era where we've been taught to ignore and avoid our emotional signals mm. and so I think a lot of what is happening is projected fear is people are feeling fear themselves but they're not acknowledging it you know they, they have fear about change it, it's natural to have fear about change but instead of facing their fear and dealing with it they're projecting it out and trying to make other people fearful so they feel okay and and that's a it's a very common strategy for people who are unable to cope with life is to try and drag other people down to their level so they feel better yeah yeah yeah, right very common strategy i was going to just read a brief thing on this from stan grant's article that i referred to earlier he says at the end of this article "Our, our world is a complicated place never have we been more connected and yet we are so fearful, mistrusting, and suspicious of each other. In a world where there are some who come to power by appealing to humanity's worst instincts, we need those who can speak to what Abraham Lincoln called the better angels of our nature. The shipwrecked minds are setting fire to our world. They are killing our children and stealing our future. Shipwrecked minds is a a phrase that was uh, coined by American political scientist Mark Lilla, which he refers to earlier in the article. But uh, do, you, do you think, of it, is that a good way of looking at it, that, uh, that we are appealing to, looking towards the better angels of our nature in doing these things? I mean, it's a interesting uh, thing, isn't it? Again, it's very difficult in these complex cir- circumstances to, to give a black and white uh, this is what you should do, you know. Uh, all we can speak to is really the strategies which are going to help us realise what we need to do uh, for our own betterment, you know, given our individually unique circumstances. So we can't tell everybody out there what you need to do is this, but what we can say is that if you have a regular integrated mind-body-spirit practice that uh, allows you to find stillness within yourself and quieten your mind and feel for deeper signals uh, about what what's best for you, then you're going to have better coping strategies. Um, you know, if you take time out to connect with nature and ground yourself uh, and sometimes turn off your technology, you know, technology is a wonderfully useful thing, but uh, like everything, uh, moderation is best. You, you know, use it for what it's useful for, but don't let it rule your life. Um, re- reconnect with the earth, you know, have some sort of regular practice Uh, understand how to use altered states constructively whether it be from meditation or exercise or martial arts you know yoga those sorts of things uh, or or, um, from uh, whatever's legal in terms of psychoactive substances where you live this goes around the world of course this podcast Um, hello Lithuania exactly so you know these are strategies that are going to help you find your path your truth and it's important to remember too that different people are going through radically different changes at the moment some people are in transition from mm-hmm. layer four to layer five right now in places around the world some from layer five to six some from six to seven mm-hmm. uh, so everybody's situation is unique and mm-hmm. the best we can do is say here are some strategies that you can employ to help you find the right path for re- wherever you are you know it doesn't matter what part of the map you're on if you follow these strategies then you, that you're going to 
uh, find mm. your way uh, better than you could otherwise. Yeah. And, and on a larger scale, obviously, as we mentioned before, there's lots of things that we can do, like um, start starting to uh, rediscover our communal ways of living um, because the the major trend globally is from back to communal living to layer six, then we need to rebuild community at all scales. Uh, we need to rebuild our local communities. Mm. We need to return to the village concept where we have that local support and our peer reference groups. Uh, we need to build communal mindedness into our uh, large scale living as well. And we need to develop to develop further our concept of global community and this understanding that uh, the whole of humanity is part of really one tribe on this sacred land, which is our planet. Beautiful. I think we might even leave it there. Maybe we will. I think that's a beautiful place to finish today. And uh, we'll be back, of course, next week here on Future Sense from 9 to 11. Uh, Steve McDonald and Nick Jean, thanks for joining us. Thank you. Yeah, great pleasure. You've been listening to Future Sense, a podcast edited from the radio show of the same name broadcast on Bay FM in Byron Bay, Australia at bayfm.org. Future Sense is available on iTunes and SoundCloud. The future is here now. It's just not evenly distributed.